Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, so the Bible reading is from Colossians 1, verse 24 to 26. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mysteries, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to God's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I'm just going to pray before Mafi comes to teach us today. Um, Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, that your word is alive and living in us. I thank you, God, for just giving us the time just to come and to focus on your word and just to hear what you have for us this week. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will just settle our minds and open our hearts to hear the words that you have for us today, God. And if they are challenging words, God, I pray that we just don't turn away in defiance. But Lord, we just work with you, Jesus, to be more like Christ and to spread your word across the nations. Thank you, God, for just giving us the technology to listen to your word. And I pray, God, that what we hear today, if it changes our lives, that we are just more encouraged to share with people around us. Thank you, God, for who you are and for the love that you have for us. Amen. Amen, Mimi. Thank you very much. Hey guys, my name is Mafi, and I'm here to, to share the word today on Colossians 1, chapters, chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Um, I, I don't know how many of you have been to university before, so if you haven't been to university, then just picture your time at school, perhaps, or maybe your, your time at home when you're totally bored and you, 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 you literally are just looking into space. I... I Back in, I think, 2009, I was in one of those lectures that you think are never, ever going to end. I was just looking at the row in front of me, staring into space, and I see a piece of fluff on the, on the top of the seat in front of me. And so, obviously, I look at the fluff, and I get focused on it, and I totally lose track of what the lecturer is saying, because who, who needs to know about, um, about profit and loss and accounting and spreadsheets and that? So I'm sitting looking at this piece of fluff, and I realize that whatever I put my focus on, everything else is blurred. If I look at this piece of fluff, then it's so clear, but everything around it is totally blurred. My gaze can only focus on one thing at a time. And I've seen it in movies, you've seen it in movies, we've all seen it before. Whenever something comes into focus, everything else is blurred. But that realization only dawned on me that day as a 19 year old that you can only ever focus on one thing at a time. Now, I know that's true for me as a man. It may not be the case for women who tend to multitask a whole lot better than men. But I I think that this is a fact that we can only ever focus truly on one thing at any one time. Right now, I'm staring at the the little dot at the top of my laptop, which seems to be the camera, and I can't see my notes, so I look down. But we're going to see the outworking of Paul's focus today in this next section of the letter. So the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to a newly established church in Colossae, a place that he never actually visited in AD 60. 
Uh, Epaphras was the, the faithful disciple who planted the church. And from the letter, we know that they started really well. The church had been established. They were bearing fruit. They were a salt and light to the world and the city around them. It started strong and are continuing the faith. It's great. However, after starting so well, they were, they were being tempted to try and find something else, something more to put their roots into. Remember, this is at AD 60, um, basically 30 years since, since Jesus had been with them. And then on other settings, the gospel was being starting to be diluted and it was, it, it was thrown up warning signs. And these guys were on the verge of being deceived by fine sounding arguments, we'll see in chapter two, and who are on the verge of being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And so one of these philosophies was tied up in the idea of special knowledge, which kind of elevated these religious experiences and elevated angel worship to pursue a greater fullness or a top up or add on to what Christ had already done. So this philosophy elevated spirituality and it was believed that everything spiritual was good and everything material was evil. And so as a result, one would deny the body and live in strict self-denial. So the temptation for the Colossian church was to begin to mature or begin to make progress outside of Christ, seeking special knowledge, spiritual highs, strict denials. And from the passage today, Paul drops a bombshell that they needed to hear and one that I believe we as a church also need to hear today. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that focusing on Christ gives us a call to suffering, gives us the hope of glory and the means to maturity. Paul's own labors for the, the Colossian Christians set a precedent for all believers in all places at all times. We've seen in the last two weeks through Andrew and Katie's talks, a real exhortation to be deeply rooted in Christ alone as Paul is sharing the gospel in the church. Now he continues in the letter by recounting his own commissioned the Gentiles. And so we see today uh, called to suffering, called to suffering. Paul's writing from prison. Remember where he's writing from. He's writing from prison. He's in self-isolation. He's in quarantine. He is chained and he is suffering directly because of the gospel of Christ that he'd been proclaiming since his encounter on the road to Damascus. If you look with me at verse 24, we read, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Look at that again. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. It's not that Christ's suffering on the cross wasn't enough and that further pain is necessary for salvation, but instead Paul is saying it's for the sake of Christ's body, it's for the sake of the church that he is suffering. And one of the other heresies that the church was susceptible to was this belief that, that a severe self-discipline that an abstention from all forms of indulgence was actually a pathway to righteousness. Church, Paul's suffering wasn't a form of religious piety. His suffering wasn't an add-on to a greater spiritual high. Instead, his suffering was the outworking of the proclamation of Christ and his kingdom. Remember back in Acts 9, Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And later Jesus says in a, in a vision to Ananias, um, go, go, go to this place, you're, you're going to encounter this guy Saul. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Saul becomes Paul 
And with that, he went from causing suffering to others to gladly suffering for others. So what's changed? His encounter with Jesus changed everything. Paul lists off his reasons in, in, in the letter to the Philippians for his qualifications for righteousness. But then he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul knew his, the secret to righteousness wasn't tied up in his performance, wasn't tied up in his heritage, wasn't tied up in his own doing, but it was only tied up in Christ. Therefore, his suffering, his, his joy and suffering, it wasn't a, a means to righteousness, but it was the result of it. It's so key. His joy and suffering wasn't a means to righteousness, but it was the result of it. And this is one of the traps. Uh, heretical teachers were beginning to peddle. Deny yourself all things. Suffer and you'll be more righteous. The heresy emphasizes external actions as a means to righteousness. More suffering, more righteousness. But ultimately it neglects an internal heart change, doesn't it? Paul's suffering was overflow of his righteousness only because of what Christ had done in his heart. So church, maybe you've experienced periods of suffering. Perhaps it's been prolonged, maybe even years. Now, for some of you, it'll be through no fault of your own. For others, it may well have been self-inflicted. And some of you may have suffered and are suffering directly as a result of representing and demonstrating the gospel. But for whatever the case, there's a very real danger and pitfall we need to avoid in suffering and its entitlement. I've suffered with this, therefore I'm better than them. Or someone like you wouldn't know what it's like. I've endured this for so long, God, I deserve some credit. Give me a break. I know I shouldn't be like this, but look at how I'm suffering for you. Do any of these sound familiar? You know, as the scales fell from Paul's eyes back in Acts 9, he began to know Christ. His focus shifted to the Lord. His righteousness was no longer wrapped up in what he did, but in whose he was. And so it can be with us. As each of us have our own individual calls to suffering, not as a means to righteousness, but as the result of it. And Paul continues on in 25, 26, if you look at your Bibles, he says, I have become a servant by the commission God gave me. What to do? To present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. Come on, what is the mystery? And it goes on, and we have a hope of glory. So when our, when our focus is on Christ, we can be sure of a hope of glory. Paul's task all along has been to steward the revelation of Christ, which is the word of God in its fullness to all peoples at all times. And so not only was the denial of self a, a seeming seemingly means um, to attain righteousness, but there was also a belief that spiritual perfection could, was actually a secret and a hidden plan that only an elite few could ever achieve and discover. So there's such an irony, isn't there? Because you've got the bias of the Christian Jews and the extra hoops they attempted to make the Gentile Christians jump through. Now the very same thing was in danger of happening here. But to the Colossians, and to the, sorry, to the Colossians, Paul stressed there was no second-rate Christian. There's no second-rate Christian. You don't have to jump through any extra hoops. And here Paul is about to pull off the cover completely. There's no special knowledge, no secret experiences, no two-tier system, no classes, no distinctions. They all have access, 
but to what? If you look with me in verse 27, Paul goes on and he says, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. He is lingering, he is laboring on his point. He's building up and he's building up to it. Paul is saying that he's proclaiming the entire message of God, not just a part of it, but what is it? He's telling them that, that even the heroes of the Old Testament, even the heroes of the Old Testament didn't know what the mystery was. Abraham longed to witness it. David longed to see it. Isaiah longed for this moment. The men and women of God in the Old Testament didn't have access to this mystery. And it wasn't in a sense that only a few could access it, that they weren't the spiritual elite. But instead it had been hidden until Christ came. And again, Paul's stress in Christ's supremacy here. So what is the mystery, he asked? To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ in you is the revealed mystery. Church, God's salvation plan all along was, wasn't a military coup. It wasn't a government takeover. But instead, it was direct provision to his presence for all people. How? Through Jesus' son. God came in Jesus Christ to earth to inaugurate a brand new kingdom, a new rule, a new reign, one that everyone can access, but it's only through Christ. And the Colossians would have perked up at this point. Maybe you're asleep. This is the point where they, they perk up because the gospel that they'll have known is that, is that as Gentiles, they're grafted into Christ. They're no longer aliens, no longer strangers. They're sons and daughters. They are in Christ. But here is Paul's bombshell that it is Christ in them, which is the hope of glory. See, the problem in Colossae is that it had become a Christ and a Jesus plus something else, a Jesus plus religious experience. And later Paul begins to rebuke them for other heresies. But here he's dropped a bomb and he's announced that it's Christ dwelling in us, which is both our means to attain salvation and the prize that awaits us. He alone is our hope, our assurance of glory. So Christ as the means of salvation. It means Christ's atoning work on the cross buys our access to God. Nothing further, nothing outside of Christ. No add-ons, no top-up, no extra ingredients. Going to church, being in the city group, doing good things uh, to outweigh the bad, giving money to the poor, all really good things. None of these ultimately matter when it comes to salvation. All we're doing here is trying to put the cart before the horse. Why do we do this when Christ himself is our means of glory? What is it about us that will not accept Christ's work for us? Where we try to earn favor, there's something inherent within us that wants to try to earn our own way. And so Christ himself is our means to salvation and Christ himself is actually the prize that awaits us. And following him, church, is life's greatest treasure. Maybe you're, you've joined the call for the first time. I want to tell you that following Christ is life's greatest treasure. I'm convinced that if we desired Christ himself as our greatest treasure, many of our dissatisfactions and many of our disappointments in this life would fade into insignificance. Maybe we'd be able to honour the government we didn't vote for. Maybe not getting to travel and adventure like before wouldn't hurt as bad. Perhaps our deep anxiety about the vaccine will be subdued. Maybe we'd measure our wealth not by our great possessions, but by our relatively few wants. 
maybe with Christ himself as our greatest desire, we will have a peace that transcends all understanding as Isaac prayed. Church, with a focus on Christ, we have a call to suffering, we have the hope of glory, and we have the means to maturity. Paul continues on in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So that, look at this, this is so key, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And he says, to this I, to this I am, I strenuously contend with all the energy. Who? With all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Do you see that? It's not, to this I am, I strenuously contend with all my own energy. And hopefully Christ tops it up if it's not enough. It's all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. That is it. That's his goal. Paul is saying the means to maturity here is Christ in me, not Christ and me. Do you get it? It's not Christ and you. It's not Christ with you. It's not Christ in some sort of team working together with you. No, it is Christ in you. He is the one we proclaim. Paul's goal for revealing the Christ in them, the hope of glory, is that they may all be presented fully mature in Christ. To be mature in Christ means to take on his likeness, to become like him. To speak like him, to love like him, to think like him, to take on his heart. So it's only in Christ that maturity can be produced. And so church, the trap I want us to avoid today is the very same performance trap that the Colossians were at risk of falling into. It's a subtle trap that that from the outside actually looks quite good. But yet when the devil deceives us, it's rarely with something outrageous. And this is key. It's rarely with something so outrageous but rather it's with a simple wrong thinking first about God and then about ourselves second. And so church, the temptation for us can swing two ways. We can either drown ourselves in self-pity and self-loathing, self-deprecation. We're lowly sinners. We have no hope. Or we can elevate ourselves with a self-righteousness, a self-imposed piety because of our own efforts and because all that we have achieved, all these things we can add on to our salvation. But both of these lead us to seeking solutions. And so like the very danger that's, that's before the Colossians right now, we can jump into strict disciplines. We can deny our, our bodies everything. We can deny ourselves various life experiences. We can deny ourselves indulgences, all with a view to attaining a higher spiritual footing. It might even be fasting. It might be canceling your holiday. It might, it might actually be not taking time off work. Imagine that, it might be not using your annual leave. Maybe it's, it's trying to pray for double time. I want to tell you, church, for the person drowning in self-pity, it's a form of punishment by placing ourselves for not being good enough. I'm guilty, and therefore, I, I think this is the best and most deserving thing for me. Therefore, I try harder. And for self-righteous, it's another form of self-denial, helping us to become even better. If I deny myself these things, then I'll be more religious, I'll be more holy. Therefore, I try harder. It's two sides of the same coin. Guys, we cheapen grace when we don't believe what Christ's work has achieved for us. But equally so, we cheapen grace when we try to add to that work. The beauty of the gospel is that it is Christ alone that gives us the hope of eternity. The old American preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. How convicting is that? You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Guys, maturity in the Christian faith 
isn't an, an accumulation of new external practices, but the inner transformation of a heart that recognizes how hideously sinful we once were and how beautifully holy God is, which then overflows into an outrageously thankful attitude for all that Christ has done. Focus on Christ. And then focusing on Christ, we have a call to suffering, not as a means to righteousness, but as a result of. We have the hope of glory. Why? Because Christ is both the means to attain and our prize that awaits. And finally, focusing on Christ is a means to maturity, simply because it is Christ in me, not Christ and me. You know, I'm going to pray in, in, a, in a moment and Andrew's going to come and, and, and play our final song. But church, this year and this evening, 17th of January, where are you feeling the pressure to add to Jesus? As I, take a, as I pray, take a moment to consider what a greater surrender and what deeper roots could look like in your life. We're going to explore this as a city group this week. But just right now where you are, take a moment to consider what a greater surrender and what deeper roots could look like in your life. Just where you're at, I'd encourage you to turn your phones over and close your eyes. I'm going to pray. Um, Jesus, I, I pray that we would be the good soil that, that your seed that is sown would grow roots super deep that whenever, whenever we grow and whenever the storms of this life comes, we would remain firm. And Jesus, I pray that whenever you come into focus, uh, my suffering and our suffering would have purpose and would, it would have meaning. That Jesus, whenever you come into focus, that we are reminded of a greater glory that awaits us. Jesus, whenever you come into focus, we realize that it's only through you living in us that we can be made holy. Jesus, we, we say as what the psalmist, one thing do we ask right now this evening. The only thing that we would seek is that we would dwell in the house of the Lord. We would dwell in your presence all the days of our lives. We would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and we would seek you. We would seek you. Jesus, we exalt you, we lift your name high, and we long for your word to be so rooted in us that it brings about a transformation that others cannot help but see and desire because of how good you are and not because of our own efforts. In your name, amen. <laughs>